turn there will be pretty much right there the whole day. Shouldn't be too much jumping around to do. And so I think coming off the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus has just gotten done. You have three whole chapters of the book of Matthew, pretty much. It's just, you've heard X, but I say to you Y, and go and do Z almost three whole chapters, and then you get to, and then Jesus just goes and it looks like he's just running errands almost. You know, well, what's this all about? And so I'm going to say it's like a part in a movie where you go from a Victorian ballroom to Star Wars, and you're like, why is this happening? But only later on does it make sense. And so I want to try and make sense of this here today. But to start answering that, we need to go back to the end of the last chapter and see how that fits in with the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the last two verses of Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And I want to highlight the word authority here. That's because when you look at the next two chapters with the idea of seeing Jesus' authority in them, they make a lot more sense. Jewish teachers, generally speaking, did not claim authority for their own words. You know, Jesus would say, you've heard it said to the people long ago to do this thing, but I say to you this thing instead. That would be weird. For a Jewish teacher, it would usually be something more like, well, some follow the school of thought of Hillel who says this, but I go more with Shammai who says this. It's not listen to me, it's listen to what this other guy has to say, or maybe listen to what the scripture has to say. If I'm up here saying, uh, here, my opinion, that is right there with scripture. I'm not getting invited back. So it's kind of a big deal that Jesus is citing himself for support. The Sermon on the Mount introduces some very, very interesting claims for the time. Jesus is going to have to demonstrate that he has the authority to back those up. Matthew is writing to Jews. These are people who know their law and prophets, their Old Testament, inside and out. And there's also a very good chance a lot of them are still following rabbinic traditions. One of the big things you'll see in Matthew is proving that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. So he's got to show that he's got the power of the Messiah, the authority to make these claims because a lot of these Jews are probably still following the rabbinic traditions that Jesus really didn't like when Matthew is writing to them. If you're taking apart those traditions on the scale of what the Sermon on the Mount does, you're going to need some major firepower to back up those claims. And here we're going to see just that. Chapter 8 opens up with Jesus pretty much immediately getting a chance to lay down some proof that he is the kind of person who can say these things. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. 
a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't publicize this one. Now this would have been a great opportunity, you know, to drum up a little support having just finished up his big event and all, or so we would think. Now, there are maybe a couple reasons Jesus might not have wanted that attention here. One is that we see elsewhere in the Gospels, he often tries to minimize the size of the crowd following him around. It's just easier to go about your day when you don't have 10,000 people following you. Following his big sermon up with a very public healing would be pretty counterproductive for that. So maybe that's part of the reason he wants to keep it private. Another, it was considered honorable in the culture to refrain from boasting. And one more possible reason is Jesus still has enough work left to do. Remember, he's only just started his ministry. He doesn't want to be seen as a direct competitor to the power structures, so the government, the Pharisees. People who had large crowds following them around would be seen as a potential threat by the government. But, and a third one is, if you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, you have this little tidbit, which is, be careful not to do your works of righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And so he's also avoiding that here. In any case, it's not long before he has more work to do. Verses 5 through 13 of Matthew 8. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where, they will, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go. Let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. The part about people coming from the east and the west and taking their places while people from in the kingdom would be thrown out is not calculated to gain Jesus any popularity with a Jewish audience because they tended to make this feast in heaven a nationalistic thing for Israel. It'd be, they didn't like Romans. They despised their leaders, and here Jesus is giving one of them a place with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the Jews, it would have been a little bit like putting Osama bin Laden on Mount Rushmore. 
These are the nasty people, the icky ones, the foreign conquerors. We hate them. You're, you're, you're saying this one's going to be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What is wrong with you? So it's probably a good thing Jesus isn't really after popularity in the culture. And what's even more notable is the nature of this miracle here. Even in stories of false miracles, accomplishing one from a long ways away, like Jesus does here, is really rare. So we've seen Jesus go from healing leprosy to fixing paralysis. And he's not bound by distance. So that's already three things we see Jesus has authority over. Leprosy, paralysis, and it's not... You can do it from anywhere, so the authority is starting to build up. The miracles keep rolling. Verses 14 through 17 of chapter 8. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Not necessarily as outwardly attention-getting to us as the last one, but these are real miracles. You've ever been in bed sick and just immediately gotten up and felt fine and gone about your day like nothing happened? Yeah, me neither. The fact that this happens here is like, yeah, this is a real miracle. She's not only healed from her fever, but also she can get up and do things. She doesn't have to recover. And Jesus isn't just in the business of working with physical ailments. He drove out spirits, too. So, a little more authority building up. He's got authority over evil spirits as well. This is going to attract more of a crowd than Jesus likes, so he takes his band and decides to head over to the other side of the lake. This is something interesting. Verses 18 through 22 of chapter 8 show that Jesus is not running a pleasure cruise. Jesus saw the crowd around him. He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and his disciples follow him. followed him. Though one of my commentaries suggests that the teacher of the law here is after the prestige that being the follower of a prominent teacher and bring him. It's sort of like, well, I went to Harvard today. Jesus is going to give him and us a reality check. Yes, it is good to follow Jesus, but you might also, there's going to be time for you're sleeping on the ground without a pillow. And for the second person here, this is a very interesting statement because the scholars and whatnot are all over the place on it. As Is the father dead? How long has he been dead? Which burial if he's dead? because there's a lot of cultural nuance to this one. 
one of the commentaries said, man's father is not dead or even at the point of death. This disciple is simply saying he wanted to return home and wait until his father died. Then he would return and follow Jesus. His request demonstrated he felt discipleship was something he could pick up or lay down at will. He put material concerns ahead of Jesus because he apparently wanted to receive the estate when his father did die. Others will say, well, his father was already dead and they were going to do a second burial where they would take the bones much later after he was dead and put them in a smaller container and rebury those. But in any case, it's clear Jesus is not going to be second to anyone or anything. This is another large thing to say. Again, if I'm standing up here saying, I should be the first thing in your life, you're going to look at me like I'm nuts, because I would be. But Jesus... Jesus is qualified to say that. And we're going to see that here in verses 23 through 27. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, for us, this doesn't stick out quite as much as it would have to Matthew's audience. Jewish tradition had people like Elijah, and they could pray for the weather to be altered. But the ability to stand up yourself and say, stop to a storm and it's stopping well that was the kind of thing they would only have thought that God could do so it'd be interesting to see somebody do something in front of you that only God can do and another thing is all of the miracles we've seen previous here these are also things that are known to have happened throughout Jewish history before so they're very remarkable but they're not completely new. This is something new. And so you, know, you could understand why the disciples would be amazed that Jesus did this. The authority is now extended to the weather. We've already seen a brief mention of demons, and now we get something a little bit more in verses 28 through 34 of chapter 8. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. 
So, bit of a Bible nerd aside here, there's a question regarding why Matthew records two demon-possessed men here, and Mark only has one when he records the same event, which is Mark 5, 1 through 20, for anyone who's interested. I'm not going to read it, but you can. One possibility is that Matthew knew of a second man here, and Mark just didn't have that information. And another is that Matthew added one here because he does not record a different story with a demon-possessed man that Mark did and decided, okay, I'll add that guy into the other story. This was normal in Jewish writing at the time, so again, we can't read this like we're expecting a modern-style report. They don't write, they didn't write like we do. In any case, it shows Jesus very much has authority over demons. But not everyone is able to accept that authority. Gadara here is a Gentile town. Jews would have had nothing to do with pigs. And while the Jews could accept that some miracle workers were prophets, the Gentiles almost always considered them magicians who were usually malevolent. This is not Dumbledore from Harry Potter or Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings kind of wizards, the witch from Hansel and Gretel. That's who these people are thinking is coming to visit them. So they would naturally want him to please go somewhere else, we beg you. And Jesus doesn't have a problem with this because he's got other things to do in the Gentiles he will get to them later. And now we're going to see what I think is the biggest healing of all from sin. Opening of chapter 9, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. So Jesus has authority over the physical world. He has authority over demons, physical world again. And now he can forgive sins. And I want to bring up a difference here in what this forgiveness is versus, you know, the kind that, say, we as Christians are supposed to practice. If you do something to me, well, you know, I'm, I should forgive you. But if, say, Ron were to do something to Stu, it would be very strange if I were to walk up to Ron and say, I forgive you for what you did to Stu. It would be nuts. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying, I forgive you for something you did to me. He's saying, I forgive your sins. All of them. 
And so it's not surprising that the teachers of the law are going to think Jesus is blaspheming. Because only God can do that. If we look at Psalm 51.4, David has this to say. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is written right after David had his little shall we say, incident with Bathsheba, where he kind of murdered her husband to take her for himself. And he's saying to God, the only person I've sinned against is you, God. And so what we can get from this is that all sin, no matter who you might commit it against, is fundamentally against God. And that's how Jesus is capable of forgiving all of this man's sins because he is God. So the Pharisees are actually correct to uh, kind of go, um, what? What they're missing is that Jesus is qualified to do this. And Jesus is going to support that here as he heals him. Uh, there's some indication that it's possible the paralysis was due to his sins and so Jesus had to free him. I don't know for sure about that, but that's something you may encounter if you're ever reading through some of the commentaries on this passage. And now we're going to get to where the title character of Matthew finally <laughs> enters the story, verses 9 through 13 of chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Tax collectors weren't popular in Israel. They were considered both spiritual and political traitors because Romans were unclean Gentiles and working with them would make you unclean. Tax collectors worked for the Romans and Rome was a political enemy. So Matthew's own audience would see Matthew the tax collector as something akin to how a modern Jew would probably look at someone who willingly worked for the Nazis during the Holocaust. Maybe not quite to the same degree, but it would be similar. And Jesus is calling this guy to work for him? And he's eating with his friends? That matters. Eating with someone in this culture, first century Israel, is a little more significant than it is today. It was almost a formal endorsement. It's like, yeah, this guy? I am his friend. He's my friend. Doing this, Jesus would be appearing to endorse them. Remember, these are the tax collectors and the sinners, the traitors, the people we hate. And Jesus is saying he's okay with them. If only there were someone who could forgive them for their traitorous ways. Now, even stranger to the Jews is going to be Jesus' reaction to the Pharisees. These are who, you know, as a teacher in first century Israel, you're supposed to be eating with them. You know, 
They're your people, quote unquote. But Jesus is not a regular teacher, and he's here for the people who know they need help, not the people who are sure their righteousness is enough. Verses 14 through 17, a bit more follow-up on that theme. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Excuse me. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So it would be rude to, you know, go to a wedding or a meal that someone prepared for you and say, oh, I'm on a diet. I'm fasting today. I can't eat that. Sorry. And that's just in today's culture. In their culture, it would be even worse. So it was considered an insult or almost sinful to go to a wedding feast, which could last up to a week and not partake, to fast at a wedding feast. Then on the wineskins bit, well, Jesus is bringing in a new system Wineskins were quite literally animal skins that you made into a kind of a watertight bag and you would fill up with wine. As the wine fermented, it would expand and it would stretch the skin out with it. But the skin could only stretch so far. Kind of the same thing with the religious system at the time. It had been stretched as far as it could go. Jesus is bringing out new wine and wineskins. The Pharisees and John's disciples aren't quite keeping up. And now the one I think everyone probably knows out of here is, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. Now, talk about some faith here. How many of us have tried to bargain with God to get someone back after they've died? You know, you've got, please. And how has that worked out? Well, I think... We all know the answer. But here, this man does get his daughter back. And I find it remarkable that Jesus, while going to this man's house to raise his daughter from the dead, is going to just take time out of this to help this woman with the bleeding problem. 
If there were ever a time when you might say, hey, leave me alone or come back later, I'll get to you then, you would think it would be this time. But not for Jesus. And so this woman, who actually might as well have been dead with how the ritual cleanliness laws worked, because no one would be allowed to touch her, she was unclean, is suddenly restored after 12 years. And for the parent of this daughter, well, I would think that would lend you a good deal of confidence because he's just seen this teacher heal that problem with a touch. Well, maybe he can raise his daughter too. And he does. Even death is something that Jesus has authority over. He has authority over death. Are his kind of outlandish claims the things where he says, are you, Jesus, are you really sure about that? I think they're starting to make a bit more sense. Then, in verses 27 through 34 of chapter 9, He's kind of doing the same things he's already done. He's reinforcing his authority. And in the two blind men, you know, by your faith, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. So he's still trying to keep what he's doing under wraps a little bit. But in this case, they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. So while Jesus is trying to keep things quiet, the people he's helping aren't helping him. <laughs> and another area he has authority over, he can open eyes. And with the mute man possessed by a demon in this passage as well, he can release a mute tongue. And let's see, surely you would think the religious establishment would be in favor of this. Verse 34, the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Lovely. And finally, at the end of chapter 9, you, we find sort of what might almost look like yet another one of those odd jump cuts to something completely unrelated. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so I want to note the progression here. In chapter 5, you have the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's going to build up to that. Then we've got chapters 8 and 9 supporting his own words with what he's doing. And now coming up in chapters 10 and 11, it's going to be the disciples' turn to go proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to heal sickness. That's mostly next week's sermon. So I want to get to what we do with this. First, just note how Jesus is looking at all these people. Not filthy, rotten, dirty, evil sinners, whatever word you want to put in front of that word sinner. 
even if that is technically the case. Rather, the one person who would have the right to condemn and to hate the people for what they have done sees them not as enemies, but as helpless sheep. And I think that's the starting point for what we do with this. The workers are few. Ask the Lord to send out workers. So the disciples have been following him around. They've been seeing what he's doing. They've been hearing his teaching. And now Jesus is going to bring in a little Matthew 7.24 for them. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So they've heard his words, and now it's time for them to put them into practice. So for us, I think what we need to do is we've seen here that Jesus has the authority to say the things he says. If we accept this as true, then we have to accept that. And so we need to build our houses on Jesus. And the second thing is, you know, if we think of the Sermon on the Mount as a Sunday sermon, then what Jesus is doing is, what is he doing on Monday? He's living out what he's preaching. And so what we need to do, we need to take this teaching that we get from the Bible, and we need to live it out ourselves. Most of us are probably not going to raise a dead person this week. But all of us do have things to do in the kingdom. And then the third thing I want to bring up here is who Jesus is doing this for. It's not the high class people of the world. A man with leprosy. You didn't touch people with leprosy. Because you might get it yourself, and then no one would touch you. You had to live apart from everyone else. Jesus touches the man with leprosy. A Roman centurion. You're going to associate with, you know, Nazis? Well, Jesus accepts his faith. Peter's mother-in-law. Women did not have high social status in first century Israel. Uh, there's a case of a rabbi who's uh, said to have prayed this prayer. Oh, thank you, Lord, for not making me a woman. That was how the culture was. It wasn't right, but that's how it was. Women couldn't be witnesses in court. A lot of teachers wouldn't touch women at all because, well, Sometimes they were unclean and you couldn't see it. It's so best to be safe and not sorry, but not Jesus. He'll lay his hands on Peter's mother-in-law and raise her out of the bed. Then, when the teacher of law says, Teacher, I will follow you. He says, It's going to be difficult. 
because ministering to the dregs of society, the people that we hate, is not easy. The demon-possessed men. Well, not only are you, they just socially unpleasant, these people are dangerous. Nobody could go that way, but Jesus does. I am not saying to get yourself injured this week, but maybe if God is calling you into a situation where you're a little leery about it, He can bring you through it. And so who is Jesus ministering to? Everyone whose society says is not valuable. Like the tax collector, Matthew, the Nazi collaborator. Jesus is going to call this guy to work with him. And so we need to learn to see people the same way Jesus does. That the lowly, the worthless, the despicable, those are all people who Jesus looks at and says, I would die for you. And then, We need to go and be workers in the Lord's harvest. And I think that'll do to close on. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word you've given us. We thank you that you See us not as we deserve, not as our sin, not as sinners who have warred against you, but as people worth dying for, people worth redeeming. And we pray that you would give us the strength, the wisdom, the ability to live out your call on our lives this week and next week. That not be hearers or preachers of a message on Sunday and let it do nothing to us on Monday and through the week, but that we would be twice the doers during the week as we are hearers on Sunday. We thank you and praise you for all of your gifts to us. And in Jesus' name, amen.